Tomorrow. A northerner has been accused tomorrow. of terrorizing London by walking around tomorrow. saying hello. Dealt with it yet, Torm? Uh, hold on, hold on. I got us got it. Duck these old bells. Ah, uh, shit. Well, I think that thing's electric. This is this is bringing me back to my old uh, Notre Dame days. Wait, no, where's the bells at? All right, I turned it off. All right, okay, good, good. Let's let's see what we can find around here then. It's it's so sad and disheartening that so many people. Like, have come to an old place and just ripped off everything, just completely stripped an old stately estate manor, and haven't left anything for us. And what, like, yeah, they have no idea what significance any of the stuff here holds, just how powerful and dangerous, and you find anything yet? It's not much. There's a cabinet, there's this, 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 yeah, this old cabinet here. This might be the, this might be the sleeper cabinet, you know? Oh. <laughs> Oh, hold on. I think I can see someone inside here. What? Wait, wait. Is that the... Oh, shit. Um, Uh-oh. Should we let this guy out? That That's actually a vague question. Should we? Well, yes. Because... I mean, this is the sleeper's cabinet. Oh, that's true. It doesn't okay. look like... He doesn't look like the black dog, Lucifuge. So we should probably let him out. All right. All right. Hi. Hi. Oh. God, it's so stuffy, Matt. Oh, How thanks. long have you been in there? Why have you been in there? I was just home to look, get some stuff, you know, just, uh, you know, looking around, you know, see if they had any All right. good old knickknacks, you know? That's real dangerous. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone do that. Oh, uh, yeah, I thought, you know, I thought for some people coming and, uh, you know, I thought hiding there, but, uh, yeah, looks like, well, whoever it's gone, you know, whoever it was is gone now. Uh, what'd they look like? Uh, I don't know, I only heard them, just like, uh, well, what, whoever, whoever they were, they had, like, you know, Sound like five or six legs. Maybe one of them was wooden. Not sure. Mm. Okay, yeah, I don't want to fuck with that either. I've heard that there are maybe still some traps in here that the sleepers left behind. Yeah, we had to deal with some few, a few wards on the way in. Uh, they, you know, they obviously haven't been uh, redone in a while, but mm -hmm. yeah, I used to have eyebrows and all that, you know. So yeah, yeah, I've been there. Why is it always the eyebrows that take the sacrifice? Well, you know, equivalent exchange and all that, and fundamentally when you're doing, like, cheap magic, eyebrows ain't worth that much. That's true. But they're symbolically connected to eyes, which are worth quite a lot. Yes. The guy knows my eyebrows have gone the way of Frockmorton. Well, actually, sir, we're here doing a an episode of our radio show. We're doing an Urbex live stream, which is not suited for the radio format. Oh. So it's good. It's good we've come across. Hey, it. I I, would, I figured we'd find at least one weird sounding thing in here. Oh it's well, um, thank you very much then. <laughs> we still have yet to find anything interesting, excluding you. Um, hmm. As the most interesting thing we found uh, so far, could you introduce? I found ourselves? a Mr. Coffee machine. Come on. We have a whole closet full of coffee machines, Thompson. We even have some machine coffee, and we've been trying to get rid of that for years, and none of the clockworks we know have been biting at it. Hmm. Well, let's sit down on the settee, then. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, 
again, it's the most interesting thing we found so far. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to us and our listeners? My name's Alex. I go by Cleomancer online. Uh, oh, fuck. Oh, oh, shit. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not a Cleomancer. No, no, no. I'm a... Well, I'm a different kind, oh, that's different smart. kind of mage. That's smart. You, you get the Cleomancers off your tail mm. by identifying yourself as one. But now I that, that's good thinking. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, just uh, here... Yeah. Digging through, uh, you know, something, you know, I heard, uh, I said, uh, the sleeper's got something of his a few years back, uh, but, uh, couldn't yeah, find it. So, Gleason yeah, Gleason Manor, I mean, I was never here when it was operating, but, um, well, it's, it's just a chart wreckage now, it's, it's obviously seen better days. Whisper War hit this place hard. I was really hoping that they would have left behind that unpublished manuscript of Dirk Allen's 333, but no, of course they didn't. Because a live reading on the show, that would be great. Yeah, but that'd be the first thing to burn. Burn real fast too, considering how each of those pages are basically soaked in ethanol. Well, mm-hmm. if you find the ashes, I know that there's some, don't petrophages, can't they unburn things or something can unburn? Oh wait, is it? Is okay, it but there's a lot of shit here to unburn. Yes, you have to get like, what's it, the Ustinages, the um, cigarette wizards. You'd have to uh, get them here, unburn the whole damn thing, maybe to find it. That's a good character concept, like uh, sifting through burnt. Like, no, it's an arsonist who should turge who burns down houses and then unburns things. And then uses it to steal shit. shit. That's, That's good. Great. Like considering that book probably had an invisible clergy, I don't think um, I don't think the clergy themselves would let it survive. You know? Yeah. Tricky. Tricky question. I have two minds on that one. Um... There's things more dangerous to them out there than a booze hound with a particularly loose set of lips, but... Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the, the clergy that dealt with him, it was the sleepers that made him throw yeah. up on the BBC. Um, oh, he yeah. He get struck by, like... Well, an egg on their face now, because half their group is basically a cargo cult dedicated to him. That's true. Yeah. One thing, interesting thing, about, because we are, uh, we're not from here, we're not from this... No. Um, this what's 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 the word for it? Um, this Emerald Isle, um, or the uh, Soggy that, Island. Well, that's uh, Ireland. Yeah, we know what this. Oh wait, uh, uh, em- oh that's the Emerald Isle. What's this one then? Um, Turf Island. <laughs> oh great! Live from Turf Island. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Um, I mean, um, green, green and pleasant land is, I guess, what you might say yeah, for the tourists. That's it. That's it. The Emerald One's next door. That's embarrassing. Oh, well. Um, What's Scotland? It's not an isle by itself. Not anymore. Uh, I guess say Bonnie Scotland, maybe? All right. Um, but, yeah, we... Uh, I think as Thompson was uh, again to... Um, we are on a bit of unsteady ground here. It's been a, it's been a while since either of us have been to the UK, hasn't it, Thompson? Yes. It's, like, there are a few secret doors and other spaces to get to the UK, obviously, but... No, I haven't been here for a while. I mean, I don't think either of us have been here since Brexit, and I, I, I don't know what the lay of the land is right now. What, what's the state of the occult underground in Britain in the past few years? I wasn't even sure of what it was like before Brexit, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, because there's it's competing um, narratives, but now we have an expert, so he can have... Uh, yeah, you know, I, I hear little rumors, Gleason House, hmm. uh, something about something with lampposts. Oh, well, um... I think Brexit's changed a lot about the occult underground. It's culturally feeling a bit different about the European Union these days. The the avatar of the bureaucrat ain't doing so hot recently. Yeah. He's not around these parts. But the demagogue has been doing quite well, it seems. Well, demagogues, unfortunately, doing real well everywhere, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it's um, kind of an evergreen 
you won't go hungry with that one, I guess. Uh, but no, I mean, just having uh, Britain, well, Britain's always been like a bit cut off from Europe as it is, because, you know, it's an island. You know, it's affected everything just from our view of ourselves, our language and culture, and, you know, just even our city design, you know, we don't have as many walled cities as there are in Europe, as far as I'm aware. But, you know, after Brexit, uh, I heard, you know, rumours there was a tunnel from somewhere in Scotland uh, down all the way somewhere in Belgium. But, you know, after after Brexit, you know, just snip, snip, stop working. Ah, uh, the... the, the second is secret channel yeah from scotland of course yeah and to belgium not to norway which would have been closer but anyway wait norway's not in the eu i'm sorry that would have been pointless maybe sweden so okay yeah the second channel uh has shut down which is unfortunate um i mean honestly like i don't think either of us really have a super strong understanding of how the of what the uk called underground's even like even before Brexit, like Torm said, um, you know, we got solid grasp on the U.S., of course, which the U.S. is the one that seems to get the more, the most, um... Coverage in the field manual, yeah. Pretty much. Um, we've done some looking into Australia, Finland. I know Torm's looked into uh, Korea a bit. A little bit. So, we should figure out uh, what we're talking about a little bit, because... Um, I know things are likely going to be different in different parts of like, well, the UK, we've got, um, so the UK is like the England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Doggerland, um, and the Isle of Man, of course. Um, and then the Don't British Isles. Oh, yes, and Sealand, of course. Can't forget Sealand. I know it varies a lot, so we might be speaking more on, on, on England than other, than the rest. But yeah, tell us about the English occult underground. Well, I'd say the main, the main difference is probably, um, I don't remember who said it, but there's a thing said like, um, Americans consider what 200 years to be a long time and English people consider 200 miles to be a long distance. I mm. mean, um, it's maybe a bit irritating to hear it like uh, on American TV, but yeah, England is a lot bit of a smaller place than the US. So um, you can cover it like in a day's drive pretty easily. Traditionally, yeah, it'd be uh, John O'Groats in Scotland down to Land's End down in Cornwall. And I think you can make that drive in about 12 hours. I never tried it myself, of course, but uh, because of that, you know, it's um, it just everything's a little more in reach of everybody else. So there's, you know, it's it's not like you can, you can't really run that far to get away from somebody in the UK. So in that sense, it's a little less tumultuous than it is in America. And... But imagine things are from, the, at least from what you're saying, they sound a bit more localized. Mm. Um, far as like individual occult underground circles, you know, yeah. you'll have, um, in the U S you'll have cabals that basically have mm. control over entire states. Now these usually are fairly sparsely populated states, but it's still a pretty far reach geographically, at least, even if it's not population wise, whereas UK, it sounds like it's more localized by by city and sort of surrounding territories and such. Yeah, like there's the Manchester occult underground probably covers this area in Lancashire. Up north in um uh, where I'm from, there's like the guess uh, Newcastle, Gateshead, and some overlap of the Sunderland occult undergrounds because just they're all so close together. It's mostly focused by city. I mean, London is mm, London is something that's a bit more of a crazy place to go you know it's a uh, if you run to actual cleomancers they're um a lot of them are clustered around london because that's where most of our big big landmarks are that said with the long the deep history of the uk you're gonna have more densely situated 
geom- uh, cleomantic sites, I would assume. Yeah. Especially because um, if you're getting minor charges, you just need a, fl- a place where a historically significant event happened and there's it's a lot pretty here. much everywhere. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there's history everywhere. I mean, they say, you know, history is everywhere if you know what to look for it. I mean, uh, I think like in, in America and probably in Australia too, I guess you have those uh, plaques for historical sites. You know, like uh, Charles Dickens sure. slept here yeah. one night. Yeah. No? No, yeah, we got those. We definitely got those. They're um, usually at the side of the road and they'll mention some like mm. obscure skirmish in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, or some more localized conflict. Or this is where the house of some big historical figure used to be, but not big enough that we've actually bothered to build a replica of their house and mm. keep it running. Now I'm just imagining like some roadside like motel in the middle of Nowheresville, USA, that just has a plaque of, um, or a plaque, rather, we've gone through this before, of um, Charles Dickens slept here and it not making any sense. Why was he in Idaho? Not that Charles Dickens, the musician. Uh, right. A guy named Charles Dickens. Not particularly famous. Very talented. Yeah. <laughs> very, very um, talented swimmer. Also known as Chickens, yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Ah, uh, yeah, so as we like to call them chicken. I guess that's that's another thing. Like, um, in America, you've got, like, the long stretches of driving and, you know, um, classic image of being broken down in the desert. Here, I mean, we've got countryside, but a lot more of it is, um, in fact, yeah, most of Britain is a sort of tamed landscape. Yeah, the UK seems to be, I don't want to say more densely populated, but more consistently populated. It is yeah. more densely populated, I'd say. It's pretty densely populated. The U.S. and its most densely populated probably beats out the U.K. Hmm. easily. Like, yeah. New York is far more dense. Than probably yeah. London. Living yeah. space than London, even. But uh, there are also, especially as you get further away from the coast, just vast swaths of the United States that have barely anyone living there. Yeah, there's no big desert type areas. It's just like, because um, it's no country, just long ago, um, whoever could just uh, said, right, this is my bit, stuck a fence yep. around it. Well, there's still a lot of them in the U.S. I just think mm. that there's probably proportionally fewer bits that people really wanted. Yeah, I don't doubt that like every every bit of desert in the Mojave, some, some guy probably owns it. But in the U.K., it's usually got a fence in the field and uh, maybe some cows or some trees on it that are distinctly the property of whoever owns it. One thing about the British occult landscape is that uh, we were the first country to have an industrial revolution, the first country to put into use uh, railways. So uh, if we go by sort of the current idea that ley lines are formed by having uh, lots of people running uh, to and fro, like across the sky and, you know, up and down motorways, then that would mean like some of the some of the railways in England are going to be the most, uh, are going to be the oldest ley lines in the world. Possibly the most powerful, uh, who knows. The idea of ley lines actually originated in England. Um, originally, it was, the idea was sort of a more practical one, that uh, in prehistoric times, people would, say, use a, the alignment of three hills in a row to make a line that would help them navigate, and uh, it was originally suggested they built roads across it, but... Uh, that's pretty much been dismissed. I mean, it's been noted, like, um, if you take, say, the phone boxes or pizza restaurants in London, put dots on a map, and you can you can easily find a straight line between three, three of them if you just uh, look for them. I do remember some posts on Twitter 
about like uh the goth like something like place name gothic sort of thread and okay. i remember once someone mentioned um in the uk it's just like you travel 50 miles uh, the local dialect has changed twice and buns now have a new name um and i think that's something that could be interesting because you're right that like it's a lot harder to get away from people in the occult underground because there's less distance but that sort of localization of culture and dialect probably is reflected in the occult underground in various ways. Um, especially yeah. when you're not going to have a big distinction between, like, in the US or Australia, like, the countryside rural occult undergrounds are full of there's agromances and it's, there's a bit of a disconnect, but I'm wondering if it's more of a spectrum here. Hmm. What you mean, like, you know, it changes bit by bit every village you go through. Um, I wouldn't be sure on that. I mean, I don't... I'm much more of a city mouse, if you follow me, but, uh... One thing I can say about, uh, the evolution of language in the UK is that, um... One thing that did sort of, uh, standardise English, you know, into the King or Queen's English, was the King James Bible. There's, um... Essentially, you just have a standardised Bible with every church, and it's read out every week at, at service, so, um... Just everybody starts speaking a bit more similarly. In fact, there's one trick I know with the King James Bible I'll share with your listeners here. So what you do is you take your King James Bible, and starting from Genesis 1, you spell out your given name by crossing out the first instance of the first letter of your name, and then following on the next appearance of the subsequent letters in your name, you know? So like, uh, for Alex, um, you start with A, and that'd be from created, 1-1, one, one. Uh, L and E from the let in 1-3, and the X from the 6th in uh, 131. Uh, what this does, basically, for an hour after you finish it, uh, you can understand anybody speaking a language that you also speak, but it clears out all the difficulties you get with slang, dialects, accents, actually even uh, if people are like, slurred from drinking too much. Well, help other people understand you, but it's, uh, it's sometimes useful if you've got you know, the good book handy. Uh, if you don't feel that confident in casting it, you can chuck in two minor charges as you finish the last word. It's... I think there's also an element that in the UK we maybe don't like... Uh, it's that distance thing again. Don't like travelling so much. Uh, like in America, if you want to go... If there's a concert in the next town over, and that's a five-hour drive, you do that. Um, in the UK, we consider that probably a bit more of a trek than Americans would. We've got, like, roads everywhere and cars, but uh, we're not as in love with the car as America is. We do like our vehicles. But the landscape that you described would have me speculate that I'd imagine that agromancers are a lot more powerful over here than they are in the U.S. Britain's probably very much more intensely farmed in the U.S. Hmm, I don't know much about agriculture, but probably... And it seems like there's just more farming town left yeah. in the U.K. as opposed to the U.S., yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to read up on it, but uh, it, there's much more of a... I'd say it's much more part of our sort of a identity to have, like, a sort of local-feeling towns. Uh, what else of note um, makes your guys' occult underground stand out? Possibly it's just, uh, like, you know, like the whole country as, as a whole, we're probably still experiencing a bit of hangover from the Empire days, where we had, like, you know, went across the world, met new interesting people, took all their stuff and such... British Museum's probably overflowing with uh, goodies from uh, all over the world that we probably should have given back at some point. So, uh, I'd imagine, like, for the more successful sort of lines of occultists, there's probably, like, um, stuff from all over the world, like Australia, China, probably even, like, the early days in the Americas as well. 
that does make sense um, to bring in some of the old imperialism uh, period because in the the history document that we went over a long time ago about the history of the whole underground, they did mention that was a big thing. Um, mm. Like wizards from the West going out and just pillaging every all the artifacts and things like that. Oh, could yeah, find. going to the Bet or India... All those yeah. places and talking about the the wisdom of the mystics there and all the goodies they brought back with them, which admittedly a lot of those are just tchotchkes. But and yeah. I mean the the height of British occultism also correlates with the height of the British Empire around the um, turn of the century. It does raise some questions about like the post-imperial. Um, the changes in Britain in terms of like um, immigration from other parts of the world that used to be part of the British Empire, especially more urban areas and how that affects the occult underground because then you've got different magical traditions and different ideas coming in. Like especially um, there's a disconnect between like the sort of cosmopolitan London sort of environment versus more traditional, even though there are lots of people from everywhere, everywhere in the country. Um, I know there's a cultural distinction between like the whole, the UKIP voting, uh, what's that called? Gagamans. Yeah. <laughs> um, versus more multicultural areas, and that has to affect the uh, 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 sorry, uh, the occult underground in various ways. Yeah, it's um, so ba- yeah, basically after the um, after World War Two, we just you know been pretty messed up by the bombing by the uh, Germans, and um, you know a lot of people have died, of course. So to help rebuild Britain, just we did bring in a lot of uh, people from the colonies. There's a lot of people from India and Pakistan you can see around the UK in sort of many communities. And I, yeah, London's probably probably the most cosmopolitan city in the UK. But uh, there's definitely sort of uh, communities from former empire nations all over the place. Well, that was a big deal recently with the whole Windrush scandal. Yeah. Um, are you aware of this, um, Frank? I am not. So my understanding of it was uh, back in the 60s, maybe the 50s, um, because mm. the UK needed people, yeah, maybe the late 40s and 50s, uh, when the UK needed people to come and help rebuild the country after World War Two. A lot of people from, I believe it was like the, uh, Jamaica and the Caribbean were invited mm. to the UK to work and live uh, in the UK. And they were fine for decades until the Home Office decided to like follow up on some things. And they were like, hey, these, there was some bureaucratic details that weren't filled in back in 19, 19- 1950 whatever and so started to deport people who'd been living in britain since for like Mm. 50 years and it was a big horrible scandal yeah sadly that's uh i guess part of the national culture that's sort of been emboldened ever since the brexit vote i mean let's not mince words a lot of the impetus behind brexit was kicking foreigners out of the country as quickly as we could i say we i mean it's gammons of course but um it's um gammons oh right um well, no, it's this term for, like, um, gammon's like a cut of ham of some sort that you'd uh, boil for dinner. And it's kind of this pinkish-red colour, and that's sort of the colour, like, you know, a excessively white guy goes when he's uh, getting very cross about, oh, men coming and taking our women and jobs, uh, and goodness gotcha, knows where. Gotcha. And it was said, like, like uh, Dave, I think some columnists said something like, uh, David Cameron resembles some sort of gammon android. Like a android. I remember this. That that was did that is that where it came from originally. I had occasion to look into this recently, and um, it might have been a new sort before the twenty first century, but it was popularized around twenty twelve. A lot of them, if you look at Piers Morgan, looks like he's made of ham. Mm. Boris Johnson looks like he's made of Boris ham. Boris Johnson more to me looks like he's made of meringue. 
meringue. Mm. He he looks like he is filled with meringue and then like lately toasted on the on the top of it. I can yep. see that. I can see that. Uh, Who's the guy from Top Gear? Oh, Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, he looks like he's made of ham too. I mean, yeah. farther now, Brexit didn't even like leave lead to yeah immigrants going back home. It was just hey, we are our links to the EU or cut. I guess people emigrating from the EU are going to have a harder time of it going forward. But this doesn't affect like the colonies or anything or ex colonies rather. Surprise, surprise, it was massively oversold as a feature, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, it was a thing Boris Johnson himself uh, did. He had, uh, well, Boris Johnson was behind a lot of the anti-EU uh, rhetoric at, uh, way back in the day, even. Like, um, I don't remember if it was him specifically for this, but he'd just make, they'd just make up things like, uh, well, because of the EU working at height legislation, any trapeze artists at circus will have to wear hard hats, like construction workers. <laughs> what? Yeah. And every what? now and then there'd be what? every now and then the papers would be like, you know, oh you you can't call them sausages anymore, you've got to call them uh botuliform tubes. What? Ah uh, ah uh, the British media. Media is kind of really stupid over here. I mean uh, same probably same air elsewhere, you know. I think that's kind of the case everywhere, yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, we can blame Rupert Murdoch for a lot of it. Though, uh, yeah, uh, like, the, the news media the in the UK has... I mean, like, the news media in the US has a lot of fucking issues, but the news media in the UK has a very particular reputation that um, is very unique to you guys, I think. Like, the tabloids and all that. Yeah, tabloids, yeah. I mean, um, that's something Rupert Murdoch is pretty keen on, uh... Big tabloids are, well, The Sun, I think, is the most popular one. That's specifically owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, he also owns The Times, which I think is more sort of paper of record, broadsheet newspaper. Of course, there's the Daily Mail, which is, um, as I call it more commonly used, call it Daily Hail or Daily Fail. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop kicking those out. <laughs> it's... Um, well, my question is, how does this difference in media kind of affect your guys as a cult underground so many adepts are very focused on the media and meet you know whether fiction or non-fiction in various ways and so many avatars draw their iconography from various media figures so i'd imagine it would create some particular idiosyncrasies to your guys as a cult underground you know, the Heisenberg Messenger must be big over here. I don't know if political cartooning originates in the UK. We could talk about that. Well, there's Punch. Yeah, and sure. But how I. does this tie into oh, yeah. cult underground? Is my question. Oh yeah, there's also there's also libel laws are a lot more stringent in the UK, and in fact that's important internationally. Because uh, I, I was reading an article in the Guardian this morning, so it must be true um, that the uh, that a lot of places internationally they'll just try and get their libel cases heard in the UK with, like, very flimsy excuses. Like, you know, uh, my, I own a summer home in, in the UK. I mean, uh, how can I go there knowing that you've, you've accused me of, you know, uh, laundering $10 billion, uh, I don't know, cocaine empire? How can I show my face at the local pub when there's people who think that I've laundered money? Uh, I mean, there's there's noise about doing something about that, but you know, it's to the advantage of the rich and powerful. So, 
probably not going to happen. Thinking about uh, tabloids, because the UK tabloids often produce, like they'll have, they'll, they're always writing to a sort of an agenda, um, but it's less silly than sort of um, maybe more American tabloids, like the, what is the News of the World? A National Enquirer, I'm thinking, where it's much more like they'll post about like, what's his name? The boy, the um, the Goblin Boy or whatever he what? is. What? No, and, you're thinking like, of the UFOs Weekly World News. That's and you're thinking it, that's of Bat okay. Boy. Well, that's Bat Boy. That's the one. But still, it's that kind of thing. But the UK tabloids seem a bit more mundane, um, <laughs> even in terms of spiciness. Um, oh, well, right. Weekly yes, World News is a deliberate parody of like goofy tabloids, yeah, whereas like it. National Enquirer is pretty much just celebrity gossip. It's a gossip rag. Considering that the the occult underground operates in ways that are more mundane than people expect, you can probably go through the tabloids and like gain some insight into things just from whatever the tabloids happen to be like screaming about at the moment. Yeah. In in the UK, like we tabloids aren't really like the National Enquirer. I mean, I'm sure there's places you could go to get that sort of content, but it's not like a you know Elvis Elvis sighted at Aldi. It's not that sort of stuff. Again, well, that's, that's the Weekly World News, which literally is about like cryptids and all that sort of shit. Uh, National Enquirer. Well, that is... sort of thing in the UK. UK is almost more dignified because you've got the 14, 14 Times and yeah. other like sort of tradition of. And they, I remember reading the Fourteen Times. It was very old like head this, of, it's, um, fringe magazines. Yes. Yeah, but it, it did seem more dignified than the British mainstream media a lot of the I time. I mean, like. How many Americans could you talk to that would even know what the word 14 means? Some. Well, the ones I know. Well, yes, but, but that's a uh, that, that's <laughs> a very strong selection bias. Sorry, I've been looking at my phone. Yep, there's a quote here. It's from Yes Prime Minister. Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. <laughs> The Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. <laughs> the Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. <laughs> the Financial Times is read by people who own the country. <laughs> the Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. <laughs> and the Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. <laughs> I'm Prime Minister, what about the people who read The Sun? Sun readers don't care who runs the country as long as she's got big tits. That that just suggests to me a, a, a series of um like Anonami's identities possibly like yeah. Daily I Mail. Read, I read the Daily Mail. Of course I can. Blah blah blah. I mean, this is from this must be from like uh sometime in the, maybe in the eighties or something. Yeah. So the uh, landscape shifted a bit, but I mean, from my limited knowledge of those newspapers, that still sounds pretty apt. Are you aware of, like, uh, Page Free Girls? I don't know if that's still a thing in the sun. Uh, I know I've heard people talking about, like, how yeah. newspapers in the UK will just put up, like, almost centerfolds, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, All just right. third page third page in the newspaper, just they'd have some some model with a okay. top off on, on it. Oh, like, and actually with the top off? As opposed yeah. to, like, in a swimsuit or something? Okay, shit, wow. It might have stopped happening, I don't know, I'd have to look it up, but, uh... It's, I mean, sometimes they'd also post things like, uh, cracking Deborah from Norfolk. She thinks that maybe there should be less immigrants in the country. And that, that's kind of interesting compared to the U.S. because we only have one tabloid. It's the one I mentioned earlier, the 
National Enquirer, which is purely celebrity gossip, pretty much. You know, you, you see a couple things, like people, if there's any sort of scandal titled a president or any sort of political figure that will get mentioned in there, sure, but it's, it's mostly about prominent people's personal lives. And, like, that is the one tabloid. And you see it everywhere at supermarkets. Um, but other than that, like, the only other things you've seen, like, on, at supermarket checkout lines are, like, um, Sports Illustrated and, like, those Time Magazine things where they're, like, celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. Or celebrating the Beatles. That sort of shit. I was... I mean, um, I think what sort of uh, magazine to see at in the supermarket varies quite a bit. I mean, um, I was... Uh, I mean, I usually shop at a Tesco, which is, you know, sort of middle... Low middle class to middle middle class, I guess you'd say. And, you know, they have, like, good housekeeping and uh, probably a few other things. I mean, I went to Waitrose, which is middle middle class to upper middle class. And uh, they had magazines like, you know, Gun Dog for all your hunting dog Gun needs. Dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh my god, that's hilarious. That's, that's great. Holy shit. I didn't even think... I Well, like, that. that's another big difference is just... It seems like print media is still very popular in the UK. And the US has pretty much none of that. Yeah, I think it might it might be like... Maybe a distribution issue. I'm not sure if that's uh, not sure if that's something I would. There's have probably about, a lot yeah. of reasons for it, but I mean, in the U.S., our big media source is usually the television for most of the population, at least. One of the various news channels, depending on your political leanings, Fox, CNN, or MSNBC. Going to loop back around to Rupert Murdoch. There was a scandal. Uh, let's see. Well, a few years ago, just about uh, News International, like Rupert Murdoch's companies, and their phone, their companies like hacking uh, the phones of a lot of people through detectives. Oh, I vaguely remember this. And you know, there was noise about something being done about it, but I don't think much came of it. The amount of like really dodgy stuff that happens in the high levels of the UK. I'm thinking what's come out recently. I was watch. I watched the first episode of that doco about um, Jimmy Savile. Oh, oh god. Um, yeah. Um. Just seeing the stream of like clips of people like Prince Charles being like praising him and oh, Margaret Thatcher god. praising him and all these people say what a great guy. Mm. And, and that was a thing that went well, on. Well, and a how long much time. the Tories um, did to actively suppress that stuff when it was starting to come out. It was apparently something of an in-joke at the BBC. Just, you know, he, he so for listeners who don't know, um, Jimmy Savile was a very prominent um, children's show host in the UK. Um, do you, and, uh, well, he started and, off as a DJ. Okay, yeah, so a he DJ, just DJ, DJ but I think he's host. most known. What was his show called again, Cleo? It was uh, it had a show called Jim Will Fix It, where the premise will be that uh, some kids would have a, a wish, like... Um, what I remember is just like a kid wanted to dress up like a swamp monster. So just uh, they'd bring him on the show. A bunch of makeup artists would uh, put him in a costume and set it up. And uh, Jimmy Savile would give him a, a little medal that said something. I think it was Jim fixed it for me. Um, but no, that probably gave Jimmy Savile a lot of opportunities to hang out with kids. That was um, So, yeah, basically what yeah. happened with Jimmy Savile is it came out that he was a very prolific child molester. Um and mm. it was... I think this came out in like the early 90s? Or oh, but it would have been later. Then. Okay, so... Well, like, I mean, I think... Yeah, I think he died early, like, uh, in the 2000s, and... Uh, okay, but I thought, no, he I, would, I thought he died in prison. No, no, I think he got away with it completely. Well, well he died, but uh, I think it only came out after he died. Okay, yeah, looking it up, apparently... 
the um, this stuff wasn't really coming out until the uh, early 2010s, like around 2012. Um, and keep in mind, this guy was knighted. Yep. Like this guy was very influential in the media, very powerful, and mm. there again, he was he destroyed the yep. lives of a lot of a lot of people. It was apparently even sort of a known like he volunteered at hospitals where he just uh you know sit with the dead in the morgue, and uh, yeah, there were rumors going around about what he was up to there as well. It does raise two thoughts for me in terms of the occult underground. One is it it ties in with what I've heard about other British figures about how in the UK malevolence or like really fucked up behavior can be hidden behind a sort of guise of eccentricity yeah or like just sort of like um, Boris Johnson has this thing too where he sort of has this very sort of silly persona yeah um and that sort of like a performative silliness um, yeah. Yeah. can hide things that aren't so silly that are quite serious Oof, yeah I mean um Boris Johnson in particular like um he's you know, he is, you know, poss- quite responsible for the Brexit situation we had. He wasn't Prime Minister at the time, but he was uh, one of the big voices behind, in favour of it. And uh, he, yeah, just he used to present a popular panel show called Have I Got News For You, uh, on and off after uh, that. Yep. Yeah, and he made appearances in that. Uh, you know, prob- probably actually a very funny guy. I mean, I haven't been able to look at him at all the same ever since uh, probably about 2010 or so. The UK seems to have a particularly close connection between its media and its halls of power compared yeah. to most countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson was a journalist as well and uh, an author, wrote some, kind of famously by now, wrote some pretty racist stuff uh, long before he got really into... I mean, I think this was before he was mayor of London. I'm not Whereas sure. Whereas the U.S., there's sort of this expectation of journalists to be very separate from power and to be speaking truth to power. Um, and I can't <laughs> really speak for Australia, though I'm sure Thompson could. It's it was like that. Once. Well, that's the thing with the U.S. is it's. I mean, I'd say like journalists. Uh, like, you don't really hear about some news channel talking head running for office. That's just not something that really happens here. Now, there's still, like, influence and um, networking that happens in those circles between media and politicians. But um, it, it doesn't seem to be as blatant as in the UK. And I, I, I think the US, for a while, there was a lot more trust of the media Whereas the UK, it seems like, has always had a very cynical opinion of the media. And the media, for to a certain degree, can kind of get away with shit more so because the expectations are so much lower. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, um, I mean, part of it is, of course, you know, a lot of people in the media, they you know went to the same school, went to the same universities as the people who ended up in government. That's probably what's behind a lot of the cosy relationship between... Um, you know, people in places of power and the sort of people in the media who enable them. Yeah, pretty much everyone who is anyone in the UK goes to Oxford, yeah. It's Oxford or Cambridge. Cambridge. Oxbridge is its... And, I mean, even then, like, that that sort of networking happens long before college in a lot of cases. In public schools, yeah. In the US, politicians tend to be more from more serious backgrounds, like movie stuff. But that's the other thing. Journalism and entertainment are very separate in the US. As far as like the industries, ah right, yeah, 
Whereas hmm. that doesn't seem to so much be the case in the UK. Not sure about the extent of that, yeah, but there's an association of identity between, like, the BBC, its news output, which, you know, is, a uh, you know, trusted around the world, the world service and such, and its sort of media output. It all comes under the same brand. There's not as much differentiation between them. Thompson, there is a second thing you mentioned earlier. There's something about the occult underground that you didn't get to. Oh, um, the fact that Jimmy Savile was able to just exist for such a long period of time doing these horrible things and everyone sort of in positions of power knowing about it and him not not coming out until after he was dead suggests to me that powerful wizards could just totally exist in the halls of power and it not coming out even like ritualists um even maybe certain kinds of adepts and avatars um no like um conscious avatars and people just like not understanding it's magic or whatever but just understanding that they're yeah they just think of powers. all the stuff they have to do is an instant eccentricity rather than something they're doing to get charges yes yeah that's exactly that's almost certainly the case i mean there's probably plenty you could get away with um i mean it's well known like in the uk the libel laws are really strict so um uh, it's probably you know hard to get sort of a, a sort of outlandish sort of uh, accusation I mean, if uh, if you found out somebody, some lord or something, was uh, drilling holes in people's heads to film with demons, would you be able to get away with publishing that? Would that stand up in court? Probably not. And there's lots of examples of, like, if someone was... A, especially the House of Lords is an interesting point because they have a, a, a strange, like, level of power mm. uh, because they have power, but it's 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 constrained, but it's also... They, they, a lot of the words move, move in powerful circles and have influence. And I could easily see, like, various... like wizard lords house of lords wizards like for example if you had a politician or like a, especially a lord like maybe a lord would be better than i think someone in the house of commons being yeah. like an active adept but if someone was like i say a dipsomancer they could always just be like i'm just like churchill yeah just drunk all the time uh yeah i mean uh it's probably it's probably also easier just to infiltrate yourself into a lord into the lords because um you know the prime minister can just appoint appoint them appoint his mates appoint his large party donors it's if you've got like some sort of memory tamp tampering ability you could just um probably slip your way in that when you just make uh somebody on the recommendations committee or whatever they've got just make them think oh yes this uh this guy with the evil goatee he's yeah he's definitely done something worthwhile the other thing that comes to mind far as the powerful in the uk is that especially around turn of the century there is very much this um, association between the influential and powerful and various like occult societies, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn being probably the most prominent. Now, most of the members of the Golden Dawn were largely artists, writers, poets, actors. It seems like those sort of circles aren't as distant from political circles in the UK as would be the case in many other countries. So, there's definitely some stuff there. Um, Crowley is another good example. Famously, a heir that ended up squandering his dad's fortune over the years. Yeah, like, they're, they're especially around the turn of the century and sort of the height of English occultism, there were a lot of very prominent and influential people involved with that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, the idea of, like, a gentleman as you know that sort of a thing is yeah as far as i'm aware just uh came 
came about as being a person who basically didn't need to toil in the fields or build houses or whatever. Uh, just had enough money to pursue an education, pursue art and such. And so, yeah, it's natural that just the the wealthy and those with hereditary wealth would uh, have more ability to pursue, like, the study of the occult. That That is probably basically why a lot of these societies were form mainly of uh, very wealthy individuals just they had a lot of money and time to waste yeah i could see there being a lot of adepts in those sorts of circles sort of because they have the time to devote to the sort of lifestyle associated with adepthood though i'd also see uh there being a fair number of adepts in um the lower class as well just because if you don't have any sort of inheritance to live off of, um, you you know, there's still the dole to a certain degree. And also there's the aspect of magic fulfilling needs that can't be met otherwise. Um, and especially you, there's stories about, like, um, these days people being found frozen to death in their flats because they couldn't afford the gas prices, uh, couldn't afford heating, and just the, the various... Uh, consequences of austerity policies which have affected people in the lower classes i mean that's when you have people starting to experiment starting to i mean magic often fulfills a need that can't be met by mundane sources so you'd see it appearing um maybe even more so since since um the austerity was brought in i mean based on my understanding like the rise of adepts is mainly tied to the modernist and postmodernist. uh interpretations of magic that uh, sort of allowed sort of what we consider like the modern adept. Certainly that's probably allowed magic to come into to be more accessible to other classes. I mean in the post-war period as well we had an expansion of education especially since the 1980s there's been more of a move towards an educated service based culture so I'd say based on that there's probably been a resurgence of um maybe old school sort of uh, studying you know studying ye ancient texts that uh, the knobs of the previous generation sort of picked up something to bear in mind for anyone practicing magic in the UK is that you know um, it's thought like the, the sleepers became really active in the UK sometime around the middle of the 20th century so since then it's there's really been a lot of pressure to you know keep quiet because they seem to base most of our activity around Europe, but especially in the UK. Uh, so, you know, even though we had Tropomancers coming back home from World War II, um, they had a, would have had a hard time. Hard to know, you know, because it's all secret histories and that. At the same time, though, yeah, um, there's talk of, like, um, after World War II, a lot of people in both the US and the UK joined biker gangs after they came back from World War II because they missed, like, the... Uh, well, the excitement and the sort of possibly the homosocial environments you had there. So it's likely that uh, we had a sort of cad bunch of uh, entropomancers pop up in the 1950s, just as was the case in the US. Yeah, as a way to get your blood running hot again. A lot of entropomancers are the sort of person that kind of compulsively seeks out risk as a means of excitement. I mean, there's uh, just a lot of simple reasons behind, like, uh, why we have certain kinds of magic. I mean, um, History indicates that Cleomancy was uh, first uh, practiced in the UK, so that's a lot of people. A lot of people still around. That's I'd say probably per capita. There's probably a lot more in the UK than elsewhere in in the world. 
probably don't have as many full maturges because uh, in the UK we have, you know, famously less guns than the US. You, I think you need to get like a per- special permit, like to be a farmer or something, who needs a shotgun. That's why you use magical blasts instead. Yeah, I'd say in the UK, if you're on the occult underground, just, uh, you probably are more at risk of uh, being magically blasted than uh, being a uh, being shot. Yeah, or just you don't have a gun old- to do it. Yeah, or just good old-fashioned being sh- stabbed with a knife, or had a, or a beer bottle. Yeah, I do wonder because um, bringing up the the biker gangs that appear after World War Two, and that was making me thinking because I was having a look over um, different like subcultures that have existed in the UK over the years, over the decades, uh, because often you can get some connection or at least some overlap between various subcultures and um, the occult underground. Um, I was thinking before what you were saying about um, some of the older magic, and I was looking at the the, the Teddy Boys from the 1950s, which dressed as um, Edwardian sort of with these long, like, elaborate jackets and things. And I'm like, mm, if they're doing it, like, the Teddy Boys were before the mods, which were trying to be more modernist. And I'm wondering if the Teddy Boys could have, like, some of them, I could easily see, like, a like you could a, set, a game set in 1950s Britain have some like Teddy Boys that have ritual yeah. magic, which Getting would be interesting. Authentic um, or yes, or even like a an older gentleman, like a, a, an ancient Teddy Boy um, who's like in his 90s now, um, who's still dressed in the same way, but some powerful magic would be an interesting uh, sort of character to encounter. We've talked a lot about adepts in the UK and to a certain degree authentic thaumaturgy because. Again, the UK has a very storied uh, history of ritual practice, especially in the last couple centuries. Um, but what about avatars? We haven't gotten into those too much. Well, uh, as I said, the demagogues are doing pretty well these days. Uh, England had a sort of proud um, mercantile tradition, and so there's probably a bunch of mer- merchant avatars are probably quite prominent around. I think I, I remember reading something that's rumored to be like a, a claim of the clergy somewhere in London at some some guy's social club. Isn't that it? would make sense to be in London. London's like it's a major financial centre. You know, it's uh, sometimes said to be centre for money laundering for a lot of the world's economies. For that for that particular claim, it would be interesting if you would have like the club has been bought by a exiled Russian oligarch and is making changes. That's a big issue that we haven't really brought up. Like how much. Dirty money and dodgy money is washing around in the city of London. One of the things that, like, um, towards the end of our period of empire after World War II, one thing that was done with some of the smaller territories, like uh, Bermuda, it was suggested, like, they could maybe provide financial services. That's why you end up with a lot of uh, companies that, you know, don't want too much scrutiny on their financial practices, having the money sort of hidden in Bermuda. Don't forget the Cayman Islands. Cayman Islands as well. I think the Channel Lines has some of this going on as well. Well, that works well for a merchant too because so much of financial transaction in the terms of like high finance is so abstract that I could see those being very useful to a merchant of I, you know, getting, handing off shares in some sort of company that have like no means of accessing them, but you do own them, I assure you, in exchange for typical merchant stuff like, you know, your identity... One thing that Brexit has done is that it severed any idea that the countries in the UK are part of Europe, 
which can mess with a lot of uh, rituals that depend on ideas of Europeanness or Britishness. I know there's at least one ritual I've heard of that requires a European flag. Union Jack, Cross St. George, none of them work with that anymore. Going back to the idea of ley lines and energy movement through roads, one big effect of Brexit was that uh, now that um, we operate on separate uh, product standards from Europe, any goods coming in from Europe have to be checked by customs. And as a result, you know, the port at Dover, I mean, it was busy already, had a load of stuff coming in through there, but now, um, now basically those trucks have to be checked over. It's taking a lot more time, and it's, I mean, it's said that, uh, you know, in Kent, basically we're turning Kent into just one giant parking lot for lorries while they all wait to get checked. So, if the mystical, uh, travel of mystical energy theory is correct, then that means we basically got either a blockage or a, just a huge sinkhole of mystic energy in, in Kent. Maybe worth keeping an eye on that one. I wonder if there's an avatar of the trader these days, like a stock market trader, because it's such a, it's such a classic, um, it's different from a merchant. Um, hmm. and it, I wonder if it has enough resonance to be avatar an avatar of the shark. Yeah, or the, um, oh god, stockbroker, the finance bros, let's see, there's, I don't think there's much of a finance bro culture in the UK, because I try to stay away from sort of finance and stay away from London in general, but, um, but no, there's probably like a lot of old money sort of uh, going around. Well, they say that what's one of the reasons, um, one of the impetuses behind Brexit was various uh, yeah. trading shenanigans going on in the background and the idea of turning London into a Cayman Islands. Uh, yes, Cayman Islands of the uh, of Europe, yeah. Yeah, and there's other suggestions like for Brexit, like um, one thing you could do is it looked fairly certain um, we'd squeak through that would remain in the European Union. And it suggested that a lot, a few people just stood to gain a lot from a massive dip in the value of the pound by short selling the pound on, on the markets. Yep, yep, that makes sense. I've had a thought about, um, I think this is a Scottish thing that they do. Uh, so it's not an England related thing, but it, it does, that thing that they do where they sell like a, a one square foot piece of land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so someone's technically a lord of this one square oh, right, foot yeah. piece of land. And I'm wondering if there's like certain things with, because the UK has that more of a tradition of a nobility, the gentleman, um, if there are ways to manipulate that in symbolic ways, like purchasing a piece of land so you're technically a lord, is that going to help you with... Can you be the true king of a one square foot plot of land? Well, I'm thinking, what if there were some rituals or things that were designed like deliberately to be limited to the nobility once upon a time? Um, so that like the common folk couldn't use them and but now there are workarounds. I'd say the idea of nobility has sort of more resonance in the UK definitely since we've still got you know a, an actual monarch and a series of uh, titled titled landowners. Yeah the US tends to chafe at any mentions of royalty or nobility though despite that like the British royals are huge tabloid figures here. I see them all the time on the National Enquirer's cover. I could easily imagine an adept whose like adept school was just based on like the royals somehow following the royals or a royal sure. watcher. That's partially iconomancy, wasn't it? Um, yeah, that's fair. I I do think in the original book they specifically mention a iconomancer or Princess Diana. 
yeah, they had spells for that. Yeah, in the UK, I mean, uh, you could argue there's probably a bit more resonance to certain ideas like the the True King archetype. I'm not sure if there would be many True King avatars in the UK, because I might suggest the fact we actually have a queen might mean she has dibs on all the territory in the UK. Well, it's more symbolic dominion, though I get what you mean. I'd imagine any True King avatar would probably have a bit less um, symbolic power backing them up in the UK compared to other parts of the world, maybe. It could be that if you've got a member of the um, the royal family, even just like a distant one, you could possibly use those to mess with um, actual sort of true king avatars. Possibly even just to by a proxy ritual. I mean, that could be an interesting idea for like uh, a situation you might have where some uh, royal is run out of money and they need to donate some of the old Sang Royale just to some sketchy guy in the occult underground who's selling it by the pint just to use in rituals, like actual blood of kings. I'm 333rd in line to the British throne by my blood. Possibly some members of the royal family, but also just a old landed gentry where they inherited their titles and uh, the wealth, but they end up cash poor. Like, you know, places like stately homes, they cost a lot to heat and manage. So a lot of them have opened up f for tourism. If, um, like, if you think like, say, Jane Austen novels, like, you know, the situation is usually that the whole family is all sitting around in the drawing room by the fire having conversations about who wants to marry who and whatnot. But even back then, the, the situation was that you couldn't heat the whole house. So just every, you had, just had a big fire in one room and everybody clustered around that. But uh, yeah, cash, it's like a cash, a cash poor noble could be an interesting situation. Uh, there's bound to be sort of mystic residences you could draw on there. I'm thinking about how there's always been like a distinction. This goes all the way back to the day between sort of like British old money and nobility and status versus American sort of new money. It's always considered more brash. Mm. Like you saw that in, so we've seen in Titanic and it's even still today where you see pictures of like, I'll see like um, things online where people comparing like not just Americans, but also like how it's like in like um, the UAE and places that have recently got a lot of money. It's very gaudy. It's very ostentatious versus like British old money where it's much, much more understated. And I wonder if that's, that's reflected in a way in the occult underground. Like I'm imagining old magic versus new magic and the like if it's an old um a family which has had a like a ritual tradition for a long time very powerful but quiet about it apparently it requires a couple generations of inbreeding for taste to develop some of the old families they're probably a bit more tasteful the idea is that you don't you're not necessarily flashing your cash um though you would probably still see them buying classic cars and you know having big houses but um yeah, I guess it's more of a, a matter of a, the, your attitude to the money. I would definitely imagine the occult underground, so far as it exists in the UK, is very, like many things in the UK, social structure is very stratified along class lines. Like Probably you have the upper class having a lot more by way of authentic thaumaturgy, and then the lower class would be doing a lot more adept magic. Um, and the middle class usually doesn't get up to magic too much. That could be one read of it. I mean, I can see, like, um, part of being upper class would be, like, you know, you, you A, probably have the books lying around from... Yeah, you have that old, musty-toned occult library. Yeah, your great-uncle who found them in their expeditions to Darkest Af Africa or whatever. Or you have some lost grimoire of jo John D. It's, well, it's, it's probably just also simply a case that it's easier to be a ritualist and very rich. 
but if you're, are, it's true. If Rituals are fucking expensive. It's just like uh, if you're if you're poor, your only option probably is to go nuts and become an adept. Yeah, but if you're rich and you know about the occult and you know where adepts, you might think like you know, do I do I really want to you know not be able to bathe anymore just to be able to cast magic when I've got a few rituals and also I'm fan-fucking-tastically wealthy. Do you even need magic when you have that much money? Yes. Ooh, I don't know. Ask, ask Al Sable, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as it, um, like Thompson brought up earlier, often people turn to magic when they want something that wealth alone won't get them. Yeah. Actually, come to think of it, um, I can't speak on football much. I'm not really a fan. But, uh, no, the whole the country is a massive fan of football so that means the mvp archetype is going to be very important in uk culture we've um you know any t- we've had that big world cup victory against uh, germany back in the 60s and uh basically ever since then whenever we go up against germany it's uh it's just a big deal we're saying you know this is going to be the one we're going to beat germany and we're going to be you know the world champions again uh germany from what i understand doesn't really care their big rivals are the Netherlands. I do wonder if about the middle class, because it's to an extent, it's about keeping up appearances um, and sort of the middle class emerges. People wanted to sort of take on the trappings of the upper classes, the old upper oh, classes, yeah. when it was much more top heavy. And I'm wondering if that culturally or subculturally has meant that in the middle class you might see more avatars. Possibly, yeah. Like sort of following scripts. It's also more compatible the middle class lifestyle. Though I'd argue that pretty much every class in the UK requires a fair amount of um, putting on particular kinds of airs. They differ between the classes, but they each expect you to behave a certain way and to fall in line in a certain way. Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's um, I read about this recently, like um, there's different sort of ideas about sort of different types of middle class people. I mean... Um, for instance, like it, whether you like, uh, I, it's not quite nouveau rich, but the um, idea that you make a lot of money, but you're not necessarily friends with um, some the higher status people, and other people who might have, uh, say, contacts with uh, high status people, but aren't necessarily on the richer end of a uh, middle class. But I could definitely see there being like a lot of avatars in the um, in the UK middle class. If we talk about, say, the journalistic class that associates with the Messenger, and probably more recently the Heisenberg Messenger, uh, as a sort of role to play, it's something that's getting brought up. Like for the upper classes as well. Like you've got um, a lot of people like going through the public school system. Public schools in the UK are broadly designed to create people who are you know, self-contained very learned and a lot of cases sort of somewhat sociopathic power seeking and eager to single people out who dip step out from the norm i think yeah probably more so in america there's an idea of you know it's it's just just not done here to defy certain roles it's something that's you know probably invisible to the people who who live here but a lot of the time but um would it make violations more spicy so it could be strengthened edit magic if you go against the grain. Yeah, Ooh. some sort of adept school that you gain charges from validate from not validating. Um violating um social norms and class divisions, class expectations. That sort of thing, that sort of magic is more common in like um what's called the high context yeah. cultures, like the UK and Japan. Right, magic that comes from bad manners, basically. 
Well, I, I'd assume like in America and Australia, like they've they've got like their own ideas and manners. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'd say if like if, if you're like a proper landed gentleman in the company of like a proper landed gentleman or whatever, then sort of a there is probably more of a reaction to uh, just uh, breaking etiquette in that situation. I guess in America, it's more accepted. It's more common, like for the very wealthy to be a bit more crass. Like I'm thinking Donald Trump Classic and such could get away with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's more than one kind of wealthy class in America, I'd say. The sort of big division yeah. you see is between, like, the gentry, where you have people that, like, deal in production and transit of goods, uh, own a lot of farmland. Uh, and I mean, a lot of farmland, that sort of thing, versus, you know... The like tech bros, kind of. I mean, tech. I think of a very certain thing when I think tech bro. But yeah, like people that are generally in coastal urban areas dealing in finance or tech, and there's very much like a cultural difference between those two. Uh, in the U.S., um, you know, class still permeates a lot of things, but the sort of manners here regarding is you aren't supposed to talk about it. You know, whereas the UK, it seems like class is very much addressed as its explicit hierarchy that you're supposed to fall in line with, where you defer, where the lower middle class defer to the upper class, the lower class defers to the middle class, and so on. Um, in the US, you just aren't really supposed to talk about it. You aren't supposed to talk about how much you get in your wages, especially not at work, but that's sort of a different thing. I'm not sure how much in the, well, clearly no more than me about this, but in the modern era, like how much of it is actual deference these days in terms of the classes' interactions with each other, because it, it depends on um, circumstance. Because um, if you're a toff and you go into a working class pub, you're not going to be treated with deference, I don't think. It's probably not. Very I mean, um, I don't really have, haven't had much contact with, um, I guess what you'd say the upper class directly. Um, it's there is sort of um, I'd say it probably is like in the UK that you do have um, if you're dealing with somebody from upper class and you're probably have an actual sort of business or could possibly have a business relationship with them, you would maybe exercise a bit more deference to them. If you're just I don't know if you just like meet them in the street, you know you're probably probably more free to tell them to piss off for whatever you, or you want. Would you say there's a big difference between how the various classes dress? dress. Um, I'm not sure. That's again the vestimancy a bit. Yeah, I maybe. I mean, yes. I mean, there's a stereotype like of, um, I mean, the, the whole Chav thing became a big uh, sort of stereotype for the poor in the UK. Uh, I mean, um, a lot of the wealthy, when we see them on TV, they're usually dressed for, like, formal events. My understanding is that there's sometimes um, more awareness of the way people sound to identify them, their class background. Or the yeah, way you speak, the way you use accents. language. Yes, there's um, a thing called, like, receive pronunciation, which is um, the news a newsreader voice that uh, people sort of expect. It's very clear. It's very Queen's English. But yeah, in and we if, we have the same sort of thing in the Australia where we have like three main accents, which is the the elite accent, which is like um, the Australian Australianized received pronunciation, and then there's general Australian, and then there's bogan Australian, and that's sort of like, but it's much more simplified, I guess, because it's not like our accents tend to be more uh, consistent because we're a more recently settled country. 
um, of those main accents. There are other accents, of course, but the UK there's more variety and maybe more shades of maybe more of a spectrum. Yeah, in the U.S., I'd say we associate accents far more with region than with class. Yes, uh, in I think in the U.K., if you're um, yeah having a regional accent is probably seen more as a class signifier. If you like speak common, as they say, um, and you know you let your Cockney, your Geordie, your Brummy accent uh, slip through, that maybe. Uh, hints more as sort of a working class background rather than sort of a one where you're sort of expected very much to um to sort of speak all posh like yana thinking about the the linguistic variety especially uh, in like between cities and towns like that um it does make me wonder if in the the sort of nomenclature that's used in the occult underground of the uk might be more diverse than in the u.s perhaps like Possibly. even like you go to i mean um, different th- parts of the u.s and uh, i mean you can't read it's it might be a little bit more difficult to talk about dukes and lords when you actually do have the odd, the odd couple them around uh i'd imagine there's probably a fair amount of terminology borrowed from well, the colonies. definitely from borrowed from the colonies but also like weird words that uh like gesture back to the history of like maybe in Cornwall they're more likely to use like old Cornish Celtic words and Wales they'll use Celtic words while Northern England there's weird like Viking words going back to like like the, the era of Jorvik days yeah. yeah yeah and I'm thinking now about how in English um words um for animals are from like Anglo-Saxon and words for meat tend to be from Norman French because oh, right. of the the class distance like cow, pig, uh, versus like poultry and beef. Ah, right. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, That's, that makes a lot of sense. I'd say maybe just um, again, we might be looking at class divisions and there as well. Like um, sort of the uh, terminology, like the upper classes use, might sort of probably harkens more back to you know the golden days of uh, the Roman Empire uh, when oh, people yeah. knew their place and. Um, <laughs> And ancient Greek, you know, and we still practice slavery back in the. It was race days. blind slavery, so it was yes, more progressive. Yes, the, the only good kind. As long as it's not racist, it's fine. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, so uh, probably among upper class things, so leading more sort of the ritual end, the occult knowledge sort of end of things. You're probably talking a bit more Latin, a bit more Greek. The UK does seem to have this sort of complex where they're like, "See, we're very progressive. See how." Um, much we acknowledge our racist past, and we're very conscious of race issues. You say that. See, we're very fine while, you know, compared to the U.S. at least, right? That that seems to be kind of the complex. Like, see how much less racist we are than the U.S. while still having intense class stratification. I don't know, I don't know if I'd say that. I mean, um, I think we do sort of look a bit askance at um, how the U.S. is, the current situation in the U.S., you know, if the... Uh, Black Lives Matter. It's not just current. Yeah. It's kind well, of. It's always. Like well, this. well, you know. Well, well, the the Sometimes on the on the ongoing current situation. You know, whenever we look over to America, yeah. we say, you know, there's a protests, protests uh, for civil rights and such. In the UK, I mean, um, we, I don't think we're especially encouraged to think about our colonial past. When I was in school, I learned more about the Candy assassination than the East India Company, for instance. Interest. That's insane to me. I mean, wow. um, we do have a lot of people, um, well, a lot of places, I mean, uh, sorry, 
we do have a lot of places where you know they've got na- they're named after famous you know ex- colonial exploiters like uh, like Cecil Rhodes, and um, you know in in America you had that f- you've had this thing discussing like statues recently like um, which as far as I'm aware basically went up during the civil rights era to celebrate their old co- Confederate heroes. It, it was more usually... It, it was all over the place, but what usually wasn't the Civil Rights era. Usually they were like around the turn of the 20th century. There was, in the first half of the 20th century, this big sort of wave of romanticization of the South. This is where Gone with the Wind comes from. So this is that. interesting because in Australia it's a bit of a combination of the two. Because there's more controversies now about, like, for example, Captain Cook statues. Um, not people not liking Captain Cook statues because, and like other similar uh, remnants of uh, colonization, um, because of the like, there was a bit of a tendency to be like, this is the the dawning of Australia. This is what Australia was founded. And then people, like Aboriginal people being like, no, it wasn't. This is when, like, for example, Australia Day is a big, uh, which is a holiday, is a big, uh, is a bone of contention now because, um, it was, it was a day that was commemorating, uh, I think originally the, uh, first, uh, ships arriving in Botany Bay, the first, um, convicts, I believe. Um, or maybe it was a landing of John, James Cook. I can't remember, but people would be like, pushing back against it, referring it to an invasion day, and then people pushing back against it even harder, being like, don't call it invasion day, it's Australia day, have some patriotism, and it being a whole thing. So it combines a bit of the, the colonial past, but also the whole the statue thing. And the I hope you guys supremacy. do what we did with Columbus Day, and we just rename it Indigenous Peoples Day, and then change absolutely nothing well, that's, that's come up a bit recently where they're changing suburb names because they that suburbs were named after like terrible colonialists <laughs> and so they're like okay let's give it we're gonna change this to an aboriginal name um and then and then also not do any policies that make life better for people of of indigenous descent but just just some to make it look better um i mean uh, i was gonna say like come back around to statues uh we have recently had the thing like you know we're reappraising all these statues of uh, dead slave owners who which dot around town. Like um, there was a case like uh, in 2020 where Edward Colston, who was um, uh, just a well, Wikipedia describes him as like a uh, famous merchant, slave trader, and philanthropist, and a Tory member of Parliament. Um, but uh, some people actually just pulled down his statue and chucked, chucked it into the harbour in Bristol. Sounds like he had a few blind spots in his philanthropy. Yeah. I I have donated 100 slaves. <laughs> it's, there's, a, there's a similar discourse going around, like, you know, uh, people want to get rid of these statues of these terrible, terrible dead people. They're erasing history, they always say. There's a lo- are a lot of people who still rush to defend, like, our old um, colonial-era heroes, like Cecil Rhodes, that, you know, I don't think... A lot of common people, you know, know much about. I mean, I don't think I'd heard of Edward Colston. I mean, it's Bristol's not my city, but um, I don't know why. If I describe sort of the colonial is sort of viewed nostalgically, but you know, where it's people are keen to have it viewed. You know, think about all the benefits we brought to the world, rather than all the terrible, horrible things. Like people argue t- when we went to India, like you know, well, 
Well, we, we gave them railways in India. They didn't have railways. Not till we were there. Nope. Ignoring all the awful... This makes you wonder, is, is there an adept school that could get some sort of charges or ritual uh, power from the tearing down Monty statues? Surely. Monty Mansi is in the... In the right field, but I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of like statues uh, just as like symbols of authority. I'm thinking of statues also as like crafted artistic. Ah, you could objects. work that. I mean, um, some sort of adept school that gets charges from defacing art, yeah, or destroying that's art. That's been done, but yeah, it could be worked. Maybe for. the paradox there is that like you don't think of it as destroying art; you think mm. of it as contributing so further like to art. like Banksy's thing that when Banksy sold his painting, his picture, then then it immediately like got shredded. Yes, and the th- one of the things that I think is really interesting is how artists, like high artists, um, they'll sell a piece to a museum or something, and that piece gets to face, and the museum is like not happy about it but the original artist is loves it because they're really excited about how the public is interacting with their yeah. art i think i think part of that might just be like you know um you know the museum just looked at it while they were buying it but the artist's like oh god i hate it i spent like a whole damn week on that thing and uh i'm still not quite satisfied with it maybe you have a different art attitude to art as a creator you know well, I'd imagine it depends on, like, and it differs a lot from, like, a fine artist to an artist whose work Possibly, is more conceptual. Yeah. There's your cabal objective. An artist, a well-famed, a reputable artist is unhappy with his painting and hires a cabal to just fuck it up, even though it's under high security. He doesn't want to fuck with his own reputation, but he wants this painting changed. You reminded me a minute ago about how, um, sort of, that sort of argument over the past and how it should be treated. Uh, it reminded me a couple of years ago there was a controversy over related to the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London where some student union or some student group had released a manifesto saying like they were like showing what they wanted the school to like they didn't want the school to be teaching so much um, European stuff which makes sense because it's a school that's meant to be about um, non-European stuff and it having a big backlash where people were like oh the students they, these woke students don't want studying Plato anymore and they're going like getting up on this pedestal of like oh they like like they gave a fuck about Plato yeah it could just be like you know we some of the commentators probably did have like a fond memories of studying Plato at private school or at, at Oxford well that's the thing you can still go to Oxford and private school and study Plato it was never taking it away from everywhere it was saying at this particular school you can probably go to Hull and study Plato this kind of reminds me actually something I could see in the UK called Underground and you can confirm this or not is um, a lot in their ritual magic their gutter magic uh, a lot more use of iconography from the colonies uh, India Jamaica but in a very clutched together sort of bastardized way yeah exactly basically like using culturally appropriated ritual elements in your rituals i i I know the u.s has a lot of that same sort of shit with um using uh native american artifacts and ritual components and our gutter magic i could definitely see that especially sort of um again upper class or ritualists or the tier of uh society 
oh yeah, like upper class ritualists would probably be just straight up using rituals from Indian mystic traditions that was then brought over from their um, you know great grandfather when he was an administrator yeah, back in the colonial days. Yeah, that'll probably be more the case of. And maybe one of them works. Well, that's interesting maybe. because in the UK, the UK could even um, appropriate its own culture because I was thinking about the recent thing where they were projecting images of Queen Elizabeth all over Stonehenge. Oh, God, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh... That's insane. That is so fucking that weird. Was, yeah, it was really creepy. I mean, as you saw, like, um, recently, I mean... As they, okay, that was probably some sort possible. of ritual act. I refuse to believe it was anything but that. Mm. That's just too strange and too nonsensical uh, and associated with too powerful a mystic site to not be some sort of magical it was, act. It was, it was an attempt by the um, the German cabal known as Saxe Coburg and Gotha to like reestablish or reinvigorate its claim to the British throne through Stonehenge. Let's see. Of course. We're occasionally Obviously. reminded that the uh, current royal family is German, uh, which gets brought up now and then. Changed the name during, I think it was World War One, just to, uh, you know, yep. just so it wasn't quite so terrible. Yeah, because it was kind of awkward yeah, having a... a German queen. Did you see recently, like, uh, we've had the Queen's Jubilee last weekend as a recording, uh, 70th anniversary of her coronation. She's not been in good health lately. I mean, um, I mean, it's possible by the time... Where's the, the holograph the ho- in the yeah, carriage? Is yeah, that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's a gold carriage of a holograph of her looking much, much younger. Um, so that's that was kind of weird to see. Yeah. Apparently people were waving at it because well, they didn't know. Yeah. She's like 96 years old, which is pretty old for a lizard person. Mm. Um... That, that carriage would be a great proxy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, who knows what was inside there? I mean, just a... I wonder if you could hack that to show Tupac. Yeah, maybe we get around to abolishing the monarchy. We could just have, yeah, have it set up just to project different celebrities and drive around London. Now I'm just imagining, like, replacing monarchy with some kind of celebritocracy. It's, it's, it's the Big Brother house, but it's, it's Buckingham Palace. <laughs> just replace the monarchy with some kind of system based on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Ah, be an idea. I mean, the especially in the U.S., it seems like the royal family's primary cultural significance is as celebrities. They, the way mm. I, I think of them as something much more akin to like a movie star, or um, some someone like Kim Kardashian than like a political. Somewhat, thing. yeah. It could be that it's um. Um, because you're seeing the like the British royal family and British nobility as being like celebrities because celebrities are the American nobility. Yeah, mm. I think there might That's be something to, to think be said yeah. for that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, politically, the Queen does has have some significance. I mean, nominally, Parliament is sort of run on her behalf, and yeah, I think. Yeah, my understanding is the Queen actually has a lot of political power technically but she doesn't really yeah. exercise it. It's um yeah, I think she can basically she basically signs off on the on the laws that pass through parliament and she could theoretically uh say no, nah, I ain't signing that. Uh but possibly. Do you know when yeah. the last time she vetoed something was or if she had ever if she's ever vetoed anything and it wasn't something that is something that stopped with one of her predecessors. 
I don't know. I mean, it might be that Queen Elizabeth II hasn't. Um, if you, you don't need to look it up. I just want to hear something you do off the top of your head. The last time the royal assent was not given was in 1708. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so that goes back way further than I thought. Yeah. Um, well, I think the thing is, probably, is if you're through Parliament, you're probably not going to pass a law that the monarch isn't going to sign. I mean, if you had that, no, the Queen does a silly dance every day on live television bill. That will probably never pass through Parliament. I've got the image of the Queen doing a silly dance every day, every day in Parliament, and it appearing on the BBC every day. She's been struggling to do the dance the last couple of years. Prince Charles but... has been practicing, but they don't want him. Yes. Mm. He doesn't have the same. The Queen spark to is it, you know? the focus of um, the face of the royal family, and yeah, there is something to say about the idea of them currently being like celebrities who are serving the same function as celebrity. That's leveraged in some ways for like foreign diplomacy as well. If you have the Queen visit your country, that's a sign of sign of respect and a sign of willingness to uh, work with a different country. Does the Prime Minister do much of that? Because one of the interesting things about the U.S. is how our political country's political leader and its ceremonial leader are very much the same person. I think the Prime Minister is supposed to be able to sort of go abroad and actually pull off negotiations and such. I mean, our current one is mm, probably not so good at that. Uh, but do they do Yes, it they are supposed to do it. I mean, um, okay. at that, you know, okay negotiation. I mean, I gather, like, uh, Tony Blair was pretty competent in that sort of thing. He could, you know, actually debate policy, had a lot of in-depth knowledge. The arrival of the British Prime Minister in a place is a lot, has a lot less pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It's, because it's more of a... Than, yeah, it's, than the Queen or the President. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, you know, part, I guess in a way it's just no part, just business, you know, the business of government. If the Queen shows up, that's a big deal, and you, if you don't lay on like a full a, a number of brass bands and close a bunch of streets, then you know that's uh just not respecting her madge. You know you gotta sh- you gotta put on a show. Yeah, I guess for the lesser nobility, they're known of, but um, definitely not uh, not as much of a face. I mean, people know about Prince Charles. Um, he there was, it was a bit of a scandal that he's you know apparently written a lot of letters into the government to say what he reckons should be done. He's very keen on, like, uh, historical preservation of buildings and such. We had the other famous royals, like, you know, Princess Di. She was a big name. Well, you guys still have the House of Lords, right? House of Lords is um, partially hereditary, partially clergy positions, but also just people can be given peerages, um, well, no, given a place in the House of Lords by the government if they've sort of done some great service to the government or society at large. Though my understanding is the House of Lords does not have much political power at this point, right? Well, basically the way it works is that a bill goes through Parliament, gets debated and voted on there, and um, I think for the cases of the Lords, that they can also yes or no the bill, but um, since it's not like a lot of them aren't really full-time politicians, they can... Yeah, it's more of a ceremonial role, right? It's partially ceremonial. They do serve sometimes to sort of kick back any ideas that they deem too dangerous. It's a break on the power of uh, temporal governments to change things too much. We could talk about food, actually. The UK's got a reputation for really not, uh, not having a good uh, relationship with food. 
I'll go to bat for the UK's culinary culture, honestly, because, like, it's not fine dining. Um, well, he, well, here's the thing. I mean, in terms of fine dining, like, apparently that's really quite fantastic in, in a lot of places. Like, in London, you can get cuisine from all over the world and high-end restaurants. But, um, but you don't have so much of a domestic... Um, tradition of fine dining and my understanding is a lot of where the uk's current culinary tradition comes from is uh world war ii rationing right yeah um yeah we don't have like a you know tradition of a street of like fine dining like um well like i imagine the french have i don't actually know i I definitely say that they do yeah we don't have like a cafe we don't have a proper cafe culture like on, on the continent um, but yeah, part of it is you rationing. Have Cornish pasties, which are great. <laughs> Bangers and oh mash. I'm a big fan of the classic English breakfast. You guys make good comfort food that's often very reasonably priced, which I think is absolutely worth something. I mean, there's a variety of things that went into sort of uh, the British reputation for food. Uh, one of it is like um, historically, like uh, back into old. In the colonial times, it um, was probably a class. No, it was more of a class thing. Like um, it's when sugar was becoming a pop was coming into the UK, and it was still rare enough that only the rich could afford it. Uh, it was apparently fashionable just to be seen with uh, rotted teeth, just because that indicated you could afford a lot of sugar. And there's a popular meme going around at the moment, like talking about how. Um, Britain invaded a lot of corners of the world, got spices, and then said, uh, right, we've got all these spices, let's let's use none of these. Yeah, some of the idea for that was, spi- you used to be able to get spices, you know, through trade routes, like the, all the way across the continents and such, but once they became popular, um, it was more of a class signifier to have blander food, but better prepared. Other cultural elements of food, we had... We were the first country to have a big industrial revolution, so a lot of people moving from the countryside into the city, so that's loss of connection to traditional farmland and such. Um, but yeah, coming back around to World War II, we did have rationing in World War II, but the thing is, after World War II, uh, just a lot of the country was really badly damaged. A lot of people died, of course, and a lot of places have been bombed. One thing the government did do after that was there was a lot of standardization of food to, so we could produce it more readily and, dis- and have it distributed just to feed the whole population. And we eventually, you know, recovered. But um, after that, you know, we'd had a whole generation of people growing up on processed foods. So they're just a lot more used to that. Um... These days, we've, you know, we've got the fine, some fine dining culture at least, uh, but we still sort of retain a lot of the, um, still the case that a lot of our traditional industries were lost just over the wall. Well, and austerity didn't help. Yeah, austerity hasn't helped. There's a lot of people going to food banks and, you know, uh, a lot more popping up. And of course, you know, the posh people in Parliament are talking about like how, you know, Oh, well, you know, people are only going to food banks because there's so much, so many more these days. A lot popping up. But, um, yeah, a lot of people phrases they have to choose between heating and eating because that's how it is. Uh, so, Tom, I, I know you've got a beer in your bonnet about the, the MAC attack conspiracies. Um, I mean, we've got all those, 
the major chains operating here, so uh, any number of them could be op- operational in the UK. One thing I'd say is, like, if we have, like, a, a homegrown fast food conspiracy, it's probably Greg's. Uh, Greg's uh, used to be, like, a standard sort of neighbourhood bakery, pretty successful nationwide. You get your bread, you get your eggs and your milk and such from there. Uh, more recently, though, it's a kind of fast food thing. You go there and uh, you can just get sausage rolls and pasties for lunch. Yeah, um... Actually, you know, the, the ritual of correspondence, you know, the first one, um, it's, I mean, what we know about it is involves like mystic symbols, but also importantly, a tube and rosemary smoke. So that made me think, you know, what could be more important to the ritual of correspondence? What could be a better channel? Sausage roll, the hint of rosemary. Uh, there was a big deal with Greg's recently. Uh, they've released like the vegan sausage roll and, uh, that, you know, there were lines around the block, they say. Maybe not as bad as that, but they certainly sold out pretty quick. Uh, also, there was a deal, big deal with uh, Greg's regarding the, the past, what they timed the pasty tax. Basically, we have value-added tax, just sales tax, on uh, any hot food you serve, but not at cold food you can just pick up from, I don't know, uh, what be the 7-Elevens and such. But, uh, so there's a big argument, does... Do sausage rolls you keep under heat lamps all day? Does that count as hot food or not? And it was a real cause celebrity in the media of quite a while. Even uh, if it was David Cameron, he had to go on t- TV and say how much he loved pasties and say, oh, I can't remember the last time I had a pasty. I think it was at a, um, a train station or something. I don't remember what kind it was, but I do remember I ordered a large one. He said so very plummily. Uh, so yeah, maybe the whole deal, I mean, the vegan sausage roll could have been an attempt to bring about a new way of channeling special orders out, and in a past tax, maybe that was a conspiracy to uh, hamstring the power of the Greg's conspiracy. No idea what the Greg's conspiracy would be up to, mind. Besides that, I'm not much of a drinker myself, so I can't speak to UK pub culture, but... Um, one thing that might be one thing that's relevant in the occult underground is the prevalence of um, this chain called Weatherspoons. Uh, the basic business model is they'll take old buildings and they'll set up a pub inside them with you know, a very standardized menu of you know beer, fish and chips and such. And it's thought that that's promoting sort of an erosion of uh, British pub culture. I mean, if you saw, um, there was this film called At World's End, and there's a gag where they go to, they're doing a pub crawl, like visiting a load of pubs around town. And they visit uh, one pub, and it's, uh, and then they move on to the next one, and it's exactly the same set as the previous one. But no, it used to be that sort of a pub was much more, sort of a, a local, very much a local place you'd go to hang out. It's much quieter than the bar, so it's, um, not so noisy. It's a good place, more of a place to relax and meet with your local friends and such. There's a tradition of older, like very, very old pubs or historic pubs that hmm. allegedly go back. And there's like, I know there's competing narratives over which is technically the oldest pub in the UK because there's, there's so many places that claim to be the oldest pub. Oh, uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that's like some sort of uh, cleomantic turf war. In the occult underground, symptoms of uh, Weatherspoons is like uh, it's thought that there's some places which are actually the same pub inside. 
like you go into a Weatherspoons and Luton and um, it said like if you know the right way to enter you can go into actually the one 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 down in Birmingham or you could maybe walk out the front door then. Is there a way to proxy a place instead of a person? Definitely something that's worth investigating. I mean that's uh, only a rumour but it's um, it's something you could if you can proxy one place for another that's certainly got plenty of uh, potential for space warping magicians because if you can oh, just absolutely. have yeah if you can have like five pubs with the same interior it's a looks busier and b you've got like a good few square meters you could use for uh your own nefarious purposes i remember reading about the um the carlton tavern in kilburn in london so this was a tavern that had been built back in the 1920s um replacing a previous tavern which had been destroyed by a a German air raid in 1918 and it became a big issue because it was quickly and unexpectedly demolished in 2015 after while it was being considered for um, like historical listing um, by an Israeli property developer to make way for a block of flats um, and then hilariously the the city council um, issued a notice um, ordering the company to rebuild the, the the tavern exactly how it was, um, and it was such a it's such a weird clusterfuck of a situation that I'm wondering like was there must have been some occult underground shenanigans going on? Well, maybe some people needed the actual old pub for one of the rituals, and like they had to work to get to influence city council to get it rebuilt. It could be that maybe just if it was an old pub, like it had a lot of um. I guess inertia in the consciousness that uh, sort of required it to exist and to continue existing. For me, it's like it. It seems like it, it's a lesson to all cabals out there that, for example, if your objective is to save this pub from being demolished, hmm. just because you get it gets demolished before you complete your objective doesn't mean you need to give up. That's that's probably also a good local objective. Like you know, um, I know in sort of a lot of American media you have things. Well, no, a lot of probably worldwide there's talk of like you know uh, an episode of a TV show where you've got a protest to make sure like a million year old tree doesn't get knocked at, cut down, or a um, or just a localist uh, local institution just needs to continue. Like you know, I can see a lot of people, a lot of people are probably definitely uh, very attached to their local pubs, and if you could maybe. It's sort of a good use for like um, mundane ends, but with magical means. Can you mind control the local city council to prevent uh, prevent them knocking down the dog and duck? Not the dog and duck. They can't knock down the dog and duck. We can't. We can't drink at the Queen's Arms. The Queen knows what she did. You know what? I I I could use a drink right now. How far is the local pub from here? Oh well, it's a it's a long way away, like five miles. Eh, that's not too bad, I guess, for an American at least. Yeah. Yeah. Or an Australian. Um, uh, right. Well, I, I don't think we're going to find much else here. Yeah, um, no. I, I did find this thing. Yeah? What the fuck is that? It's a, this looks vaguely African. It's some kind of rattle, it looks like. Let me just shake it and see what happens. Oh, fuck, this ghost. Let's get out of here. <laughs> I thought it's a... <laughs> It's that thing with the legs again. We're really selling it.
Buckingham Palace has announced the death of His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. Swine, for we are the poor side. 